Blessed Sabbath to everyone. Welcome. And I'd like to thank Brother Ruben, as always, for giving us the inspiration, the motivation, and the uplifting of music to glorify God by learning more of Him today, especially on the topic of conscience. Let us bow our heads in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for still giving us a conscience. We pray that it shall become a conscience that is totally void of offense to God in our fellow men, that you may be able to impart to us increasing wisdom and knowledge 
not for our sakes, but for the sakes of those who do not yet understand this truth, that God may be glorified. But in the end, we may all be saved in God's way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Welcome once more as we continue our series on the liberty and freedom of conscience. You will find that this is the most critical issue in the days ahead as people are worried about what is coming upon the United States and upon the whole world. You need not worry about it. God has shown us what it will be. And Satan has made every effort to obscure or to blur the issues. But God's people today have to bring us back into line, understanding the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation in regards to the final test that is coming, central to which is the freedom of conscience and liberty. So this morning I'd like to begin by referring to a body of verses, the first chapter of Hebrews. And I'll tell you very shortly the reason why. But I'm going to read it to you. Because we're not talking of man's conscience. We're talking of the conscience of Jesus. And in the book of Hebrews, the epistle to the Hebrews, Paul being its author, presents Jesus to us first and foremost as God himself in the first chapter. And then in the chapter following, chapter 2, he presents Jesus to us as the Son of Man. Men or God in men. So I'd like you and I to really understand what conscience means by first asking the Bible to explain to us who Jesus is, what his character, and what God the Father calls him. Hebrews chapter 1. I'm going to begin reading verses 1 to 9. And you will pause. All of us will pause once we get to verse 9 and ponder a little bit on this. Verse 1 says, God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. Verse 2 has in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Verse 3, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, set down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they, that is the angels, for unto which of these angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee, and again I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten Son into the world, he saith, Let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who maketh his angels spirits, and his ministers a flame of fire. Angels are ministers of fire. But 
Look at this. Unto the Son, he saith, Thy throne, O God. The Father addresses his Son and says, My Son, and your throne, O God, is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness. Now, do you understand that kingdom of God? The scepter that he wields is the scepter of righteousness. Is the, is the scepter of thy kingdom. Now here we are in verse 9. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Our conscience has everything to do with this. Because Jesus, who is God in the flesh, whom God the Father himself addresses as God, when he became man, had a conscience. And that conscience carefully preserved that nature of God, of mercy and justice, righteousness and love go together. And if you and I will understand how this conscience must operate and fulfill God's plan, we must understand what the nature of God is as found in his conscience, reflected, manifested in the nature of Christ when he became a man. And what was it? He says he loved righteousness and he hated iniquity. Our conscience, therefore, in order to be pleasing to God and be ready for eternity, it's not a new conscience, but it has to be molded into the conscience that he had. It, his nature and character was he loved righteousness and he hated iniquity. Anything halfway is not God's conscience. It's not conscience that God wants to renew in man. It has to be absolutely loving righteousness and hating iniquity. Therefore, you and I cannot love righteousness and love iniquity at the same time or hate iniquity and also hate righteousness. And yet that is what is happening. And you see the results. As Jesus said, by their fruits, you shall know them. Now, what is the gift of conscience for? And we continue to refer to the writings, of the spirit of prophecy. It quotes from Psalms 119, verse 1. It says, blessed are the undefiled. Remember, to those who are pure, everything is pure. If his conscience is pure, everything is pure. So the undefiled are those whose consciences are undefiled. Blessed are the undefiled in the way, as they travel life, who walk in the law of the Lord. Psalms 119, verse 1. And so we, we look now at what this will, the magnification of this. God, the great governor of the universe, we just read that in Hebrews. He, God created all things through his Son including all the other worlds, not just this earth. 
God, the great governor of the universe, has put everything under law. The tiny flower and the towering oak, the grain of sand and the mighty ocean, sunshine and shower, wind and rain, all obey nature's laws. But man has been placed under a higher law. He has been given an intellect to see and a conscience to feel. It's not an intellect to feel and a conscience to see, but an intellect to see and a conscience to feel. That's why it needs to be tender. The powerful claims of God's great moral law, the expression of what he desires to be. God has made known his will so plainly that no one need err. He desires all to have a correct understanding of his law by the intellect that sees and by the conscience that feels. To feel the power of its principles. To feel the power of its principles of the law. For their eternal interests are here involved. Not temporal, not temporary, not fleeting, but eternal interests. He who has an understanding of the far-reaching claims of God's law can understand something of the heinousness or the exceeding wickedness of sin. And the more exalted his ideas of God's requirements, the greater will be his gratitude for the pardon that has been granted him. You see now all this talk about justification being pardoned. There's much, much more to it. The conscience being central to that. And the character of Christ who loves righteousness and hates iniquity or sin. So that we need to understand and to, with the intellect to see and the conscience to feel the exceeding heinousness or wickedness of sin so that the more exalted our ideas because of the process of God's requirements, the greater will be our gratitude for the pardon, the justification we receive from him. But in our own strength, the sinner cannot meet the demands of God. What must he do? He must go to, for help to the one who actually paid the ransom for him. That is why Christ is our only hope. Those who trust in him are cleansed. The grace of Christ and the government of God walk together in perfect harmony. It's not because of the grace of Christ that we can break or rebel against God's government. They are paired. They go in perfect harmony. When Jesus became man's sub substitute, what happened? Psalms 85, 10 says, Mercy and truth met together, and righteousness and peace kissed each other. Therefore, Calvary. The cross of Calvary bears witness to the high claims of God's law, in fact. 
because the law of Ten Commandments is not to be looked upon as much from the prohibitory side, thou shalt not, as from the mercy side. If you see that second commandment, well, it says there, in showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Actually, its prohibitions are the sure guarantee of happiness in obedience. And as received in Christ, it works in us the purity of character that will bring joy to us, how long? Throughout the eternal ages. To the obedient, listen to this, that law is the wall of protection. We behold in it the goodness of God, who by revealing to man the immutable principles of righteousness, principles, seeks to shield him from the evils that result from transgression. So actually our fear is not because of the consequences, but of the cause itself, the transgression. Of course, there's a, a consequence to that. So this conscience can be cleansed and purified. We're not given you one. It must be cleansed and purified. And the question is how? Well, by obedience. People hate the word obedience. What happens to their conscience that's been defiled? Cannot be cleansed, cannot be purified. I'm reading here a, a, uh, a reference. Uh, well, it says, that I may know him. That's a devotional. To be a Christian. So this is for all Christians today, whatever you call them. Evangelical or Pentecostal or whatever. Christians. To be a Christian is not merely to take the name of Christ. Or they say, oh, I subscribe to the Apostles' Creed. That's not enough. But in fact, the truth of the matter is, as we discuss this topic now on the conscience, connection with the mind, the will, the soul, and the heart, that the, the Christian is, is one who has and takes the mind of Christ. He has, he takes the mind of Christ and then to submit the will to God in all things. Because many who profess to be Christians have yet to learn this great lesson. Many actually know very little of what it is to deny self for Christ's sake. They do not study how they can best glorify God and advance his cause. Remember what Paul says? Whatever, whatsoever you eat or whatsoever you drink or for whatsoever you do, do all to God's glory. So they, it, but it is self. Self actually there. It is self. It is self. How can self be gratified? If that's the kind of Christian religion you have and I have, it is totally, totally worthless. Because in the day of God, those who possess it will be weighed in the balances and found wanting. What men may say, what their opinions of us may be, amounts to very little. Many people live and die by that. They want men's opinions. They want what the crowd says about them and act 
that way. But the question that should concern us is, what is God's measurement of my character? And he looks at our conscience. He who sustains another man in a wrong course of action is not on the God's side. He is on the enemy's side. And if you read about Nehemiah, there's a wonderful character in the Old Testament. Nehemiah's example. In Nehemiah 5.15, Nehemiah answered, So did not I, because of the fear of God. Therefore, every soul is to gird himself for the spiritual conflict before us. The world's plans, the world's customs, the world's conniving. And may I add, may, and it's evident today, the world's politics. Jesus was no politician. Are not for us. Listen up, those who are trying to be politically, politically militant and trying to advance a religious agenda, never mix. We are to say, so did not I, as Nehemiah said, because of the fear of God. Meaning to say selfishness, dishonesty, craftiness, are trying to intrude into our hearts and to our conscience. Let us not give them room. That is a choice of conscience. Nehemiah kept his eye. Remember that the eye, or the soul is the conscience. He kept his eye single to the glory of God. By the stability of his course of action, he gave evidence that he was a brave and courageous Christian. His conscience was cleansed, refined, and ennobled by obedience to God. He refused to depart from Christian principles, not Christian laws, but Christian principles. And that is how his conscience was refined, cleansed, and ennobled by obedience. You know, our conscience cannot be preserved. You say, how do I preserve my conscience? The conscience cannot be preserved without a struggle. In heavenly places, 149, if you see Daniel chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, a perfect example right here. Daniel and his companions had a conscience that was void of offense towards God. But this did this is not preserved. And their experience recorded. This is not preserved without a struggle. That's actually where the struggle takes place. It begins and ends. What a test was brought on those three young Hebrew associates of Daniel when they were required to worship the great image that was set up by King Nebuchadnezzar in the plains of Dura, in front of the whole then known world. But their principles forbade them to pay homage to the idol, for it was a rival to the God of heaven. They knew that they owed to God every faculty that they possessed. 
including their conscience. And my question is, do we also have the same conviction? And while their hearts were full of generous sympathy towards all men, including the enemies of truth, they had a lofty aspiration to prove themselves entirely loyal to God. These faithful youth, mind you, these were not older persons, young men, were cast into the fire. But no, God manifested his power for the deliverance of his faithful servants. For because we read, one like the Son of Man walked with them in the midst of the flame, and when they were brought forth, not even the smell of fire had passed upon them. And the king and all his king's men were just watching. And so this youth, imbued with the Holy Spirit, declared to the whole nation, and I would say the empire, because that was the empire of the king, um, their faith. What kind of faith? That he whom they worship was the only true and living God. This demonstration of their own faith or religion was the most eloquent presentation of their principles. What kind of principles do you have? In order to impress idolaters with the power and greatness of the living God, what did they do? His servants and his servants must reveal their own reverence for God. They must make it manifest that he is the only object of honor and worship and that no consideration, not even the preservation of life itself, could induce them to make the least concession to idolatry. These lessons have a direct and vital bearing upon our experience in these very last days right now. On that last test against the worship of his business image, Revelation chapter 13, and receiving his, the beast's mark, name or number in the forehead or in the right hand, this is central. This is the test that is coming. Therefore, we must keep our conscience clear before God and man. Now, problem of anxiety. If there's one word that should describe the condition of man, starting with letter A, today it's A. It's not a good grade. It stands for anxiety. Why? Now, in this reading, we will find out, and it's borne out by even, you know, scientific studies. People of the world suffer anxiety because their consciences condemn them. And I'm reading from This Day with God 264. You can rest and have peace only as you find it in Jesus. The world, its maxims, its customs are the parents of unnumbered sufferings. Many suffer with ungratified wishes. They bind burdens on themselves, their ungrateful desires, with the condemnation of conscience, not having harmony with God, and with the apprehension of his displeasure and wrath. Their existence is a matter of continual anxiety. 
There is a lack, a want, an absence, a dearth of heavenly consolation in their suffering. They are fearful of punishment. There is a fearful foreboding of the future. That should solve, I mean, problems of people today if they understood why they're so anxious. Not because of anything else, but because of a bothered and a condemned conscience. Now, who are we up against? We never forget that Satan is alive. That demons, fallen evil spirits, are all around us. They are intelligent. And what are they doing? Well, they're doing the bidding of Satan. These demon, demon intelligences are actually behind those who are hurting and destroying those whose consciences they cannot control. They resort to force when they fail on deceit. And I'm going to read to you what Jesus said to his disciples, John 15, verse 20. Jesus warned them, Remember the word that I said to you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep you all yours also. And here's the reading uh, we have from Spirit of Prophecy. Uh, I think this, this is from upward look, page 285. If he who is pure, holy, and undefiled, who did good and good only in our world, was treated as a base criminal and condemned to death without a vestige of evidence against him, what can his disciples expect but similar treatment? however faultless may be their life and blameless their character. Human enactments, laws manufactured by satanic agencies under the plan, under the so-called plea of goodness and restriction of evil, will be exalted, while God's holy enactment of Ten Commandments will be despised and trampled underfoot. It is apostasy from the truth that worketh in the children of disobedience. Ephesians 2, 2 and 5, Colossians 3, verse 6. It is this apostasy that worketh in the children of disobedience in order to silence the voice of those who are calling them to obedience and provoke the loyal, those who are loyal to God and the slow, to become disloyal <laughs> as Cain tried to provoke Abel, his brother. A demoniacal spirit takes possession of men in our world. And here it is, friends. You must understand why these things are happening right now. Demon intelligences will rend and destroy man formed in the divine likeness because man cannot control the conscience of his brother and make him disloyal to God's holy law because he himself or anyone attempting to control the conscience is unrighteous just like Cain, who was disobedient to God's command and regard and requirements regarding worship. The world is represented in the apostate churches who are trampling upon the word of God, transgressing his holy law. They know not what spirit they are, 
nor the end of that dark tunnel through which they are passing. But actually they are hastening forward, deceived, deluded, blind, to the first and the second death. So I saw important for us to fully understand the nature of men, the nature of sin, and the nature of death. See, the vast tide of human will and human passion is leading to things they did not dream of when they disregarded the law of God for the inventions and laws of man. They have actually exalted phantoms and the eternal realities are nothing to them or not. That's upward look, page 285. You know, as we slowly close out on this topic, I will make this appeal once more to everyone. Every rational mind God expects to study his word put on their own because salvation, never forget this, is individual. And therefore we must eat the word of God for ourselves. Let us not wait for others to feed us or to force feed us with regurgitated food which is essentially what people are doing right now. They're getting, allowing other people, other men, other guardians of their soul to eat the word of God, change its nature, and then feed us. Let us get it fresh and direct from the source, the Bible. And above all, in our study, in our series, pray to God. Do what you're told to do, and that is, to keep your consciences void of offense towards God. And the only way we can do that, simple. Do God's will. Watch from all the temptations that Satan is going to and has been doing uh, to, to distract us and to deceive us and to entertain us. And then pray without ceasing. The conscience cannot be preserved without a struggle. But that struggle strengthens our faith and shores up our sagging defenses that Christ himself, one day, very soon, will say that your conscience is clear. You have nothing to fear. May God bless you. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, that we can continue studying this word. And as we slowly shift to a, a related topic, which is the test that is coming, what the world is doing, what we will all be facing, which is a test of our freedom, our understanding of what liberty means, and our desire to worship God according to the dictates of our conscience, we must understand this issue. It is front and center of the final test upon mankind. And my prayer is that none of us will ever deny you. And that like Daniel and his three Hebrews, they magnified the word of God. God was glorified. All these things we ask in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.